Hello, and welcome to Outward, Slate's podcast about the first woman president of the United States trying desperately to get her bisexual son on prep. (laughs) But more on that later. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. It's great to be back with you guys. Yes, I am Jules Gil Peterson, and that's your Royal Highness to all of our listeners. <laughs> I am Brian Lauder. Uh, I'm an editor at Slate. So I was going to say, like, oh, it's our last podcast of the summer, but in this era of climate catastrophe oh, and also God. not being in school anymore, I kind of feel like summer lasts through the end of September. So, listeners, I hope y'all are enjoying the middle of summer, which Mm -hmm. is nowhere close to ending. We still have much of it left. And I'm so excited for our show this month because we have two topics to discuss that truly span the full range of cultural and political sophistication. First, we're going to review Red, White, and Royal Blue, the new adaptation of Casey McQuiston's best-selling gay romance novel, It's out on Amazon Prime now, and it features two men with, I would say, almost identical bodies. It's heavier on the rom than the com, although it professes to be both, and it is really apolitical as anything, despite having a presidential election as one of the major moving parts of the story. Then for our second topic... We are going to talk to Pigeon Pagonis, a brilliant intersex activist and educator who's out with a new book called Nobody Needs to Know. The book is part memoir of their childhood and coming of age and part creed occur about their work to stop non-consensual surgeries on intersex kids. That is going to be an amazing conversation. I'm thrilled that Pigeon is going to be here with us. And I'm really excited to hear what both of you have to think about both of these things. But first, Brian, what's in our mailbox this month? Christina, we are, I'm so happy because we've got a bunch of mail in our mailbox this month. We love to hear from you guys, and um, yeah, it just warms our hearts to see the see those responses. So we decided today for thoughts and queries that we would share two of those uh, letters that we received. I will read the first one. This is from listener Sam, who decided to actually share a pride of his own uh, with us. Yeah. So Sam writes... I am a very active volunteer with the Boy Scouts of America at BSA since I was five years old, but in 2005 I was banned after I came out. When the BSA ended its ban on LGBTQ adult leaders, I returned to the organization, and since that point I have been part of the team leading our efforts to support LGBT and allied scouts. I was the lead author of a new merit badge to teach inclusion and have led the first ever inclusivity spaces at national scouting events, including the first ever program at a national jamboree, to support LGBTQ scouts, uh, which just wrapped up last week. The scouts have a well-earned reputation for not being welcoming, for wearing uniforms, engaging in cultural appropriation, and being out of touch with the needs of modern youth. But if you could have been there last week at our jamboree and saw the thousands, literally, of young people, many of whom were trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming, who engaged with our work and felt affirmed and welcome and supported, you would have shed a tear. I did, and many of my colleagues did as well. This made me really proud, and I hope it makes you feel the same way. Sam, I'm actually an Eagle Scout, um, so I I have a relationship (laughs) with the Boy Scouts of America, um, and a a fraught one for all of the reasons that you, you know, uh, mention up top there. And it really does give me goosebumps almost to think about a, a national jamboree that would look like that, you know, because that is not what it looked like when I was there. It was a very closety feeling place, not welcoming, you know, in, in any way to queer people. 
gay people, much less gender nonconforming folks and others. So uh, it's just fantastic to hear that that's happening. And thank you so much for the work. Uh, yeah, you know, like to uh, go back doing. to an institution that like fully ostracized you is really admirable. We're proud of you, Sam. Thank you so much Very. for that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seemed like merit badges was kind of the theme in our mailbox uh, this month. So I'm going to read uh, a little message from another listener, Peter. And, and, you know, folks, see if you can spot the, the merit badge appearance here. So Peter writes, just listened to the July show and wanted to express my appreciation for the segment on cruising. I will be celebrating my 50th anniversary as an inveterate cruiser in 2025 and was thrilled to hear this topic dealt with in such a dignified, matter-of-fact way. I, too, earned my cruising merit badge, arrested in a park sting, spent 24 hours in a southern county jail, and subsequently dealt with the legal ramifications for almost an entire year. And I've never been ashamed of, nor shied away from talking about this experience to anyone interested in my experiences. Perhaps he writes about this in the book, that's part cruising from last month, but I am surprised there was no mention of the infamous cruisingforsex.com website, an international source for all things cruising, which led to the discovery of the most amazing cruising sites in the most obscure tracts and villages, including at least two of the public libraries in which I was employed over my lengthy <gasps> career of 46 years. Unfortunately, local law enforcement agencies also found this site very useful in planning stings, and I imagine the site is but a shell of its former glorious self. Thanks again for such an intelligent look at this proud but too often hidden aspect of LGBTQ history. Well, Peter, thank you for being an absolute star uh, of the cruising <laughs> scene, <laughs> um, but also for, for dropping that little bit of uh, yeah queer internet knowledge. I also want to know... Peter, how you're going to celebrate your 50th anniversary of cruising? I know in we might not be able to say that on the air, but you know, let <laughs> yeah. us know. Please follow up with us. <laughs> yeah, the rambles. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, if anyone else has a thought or query for us, spicy or mild, uh, please let us know at outwardpodcast.slate.com. And you know, we always love to hear your gorgeous voices, so send your voice memos uh, to us that way if you're so inclined. I think this is time for a little more pride uh, and maybe some provocations too. So um, yeah, Brian, what have you got for us this month? Sure. Um, I have a pride uh, and specifically my pride is about all of these queers I'm seeing out here making those expensive summer concert tickets count on social media. So I wanted to say like up front that I am not really a concert queen unless you're talking about like the New York Philharmonic. This is not shade or anything like that. It's just a fact. Like I'm not someone who would go to these things. So Earlier this spring, I really watched with a lot of fascination and maybe like trepidation as I saw people (laughs) dropping like sizable fractions of their incomes on tickets to Beyonce and to Taylor Swift, Carly Rae, other people that were performing this summer in these big tours that that were very exciting. And, you know, these tickets were just going for like 1K to like it seemed like people were spending a lot of money. So I was like, God. I hope when these come round that it was worth it because like that's so much money and so much investment like you know in one night of of sort of music 
And I've been delighted to see on social media that the queers are out here making those credit card payments count. Uh, I am delighted in seeing everyone turning out looks. The like looks have been incredible. Yeah. People have been taking over like train stations and subway stations, like on their way at airports, like on their way to these various concerts, um, and and sort of creating these even little like queer club spaces together. It looks like even in like the nosebleed seats at at some of the concerts. So I'm just happy and proud that everyone's really getting their lives and their money's worth from it. Uh, and, you know, I just never want to see our community, you know, cheated or disappointed. Uh, and so delighted to see that the, that the concert, the big, big concerts are working out for everybody this summer. Brian, it's just so you to be <laughs> concerned about, like, the financial solvency of our queer community. And I love that you play that role in our lives. The return on investment, you know? Add that <laughs> to income ratio. Yeah. <laughs> um, Christina, what do you have? Unfortunately, I'm provoked. I'm like sort of always at a low grade provocation in life. Um, <laughs> so I hope the cancel culture doesn't come for me for this heterodox opinion. But um, I'm about to join the intellectual dark web because I was provoked by the Barbie movie. <gasps> um, I know. I know we're all supposed to like support women um, and like support <laughs> bimbos and whatever. And I did enjoy the movie a lot. Although I kind of couldn't believe that after all that Barbie marketing and all the jokes in the movie about how Ken was like second fiddle, he had such a big role to play in the mm. movie. Like, all the songs and dance numbers, the entire thrust of the film was basically about him. But that's not actually why I'm provoked. I'm provoked because the movie covers so many sort of bizarre and cockeyed things about Barbie culture. Like, Kate McKinnon, who plays the Barbie, who had her face, like, colored on with a marker and her hair chopped <laughs> off, which I totally did to one of my Barbies. It includes the magic earring Ken, who's sort of canonically gay and wore a cock ring on a chain around his neck. But Greta Gerwig neglects what I consider to be a fundamental pillar of childhood Barbie play. Hmm. Scissoring. (gasps) Christina. I'm like 99% sure straight people did this too as kids. The movie, you know, points out time and time again, Ken is fully ancillary to the Barbie universe. Kids maybe had one Ken, if any. Mm. You know, I probably had one Ken and like 15 Barbies. So, yes, the Barbies got in the hot tub naked together. They made out. They scissored. It's totally revisionist history and lesbophobic, I'll say, to pretend (laughs) otherwise. You know, Ken gets to be gay in this movie. Why can't Barbie? Mm. Um, That really provoked me. I was fully expecting to see it right up until the very end of the film. Jules, how are you feeling? Well, I can't get the image of Barbie scissoring out of my head, but um, (laughs) I I am proud this month and maybe a a latest installment in, uh, you know, fuck those culture wars, but this shit is funny and good for us anyways. Um, folks might have heard that there are some Republican officials in apparently at least eight states who want to really withdraw all connections to the American Library Association, which I feel like we do mention on this show from time to time. <laughs> Beloved. Um, particularly because it's a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous president, Emily Drabinsky, who I know through academic channels, um, had a Twitter post that, you know, was was up, uh, I don't know, like over a year ago in which, um, you know, Drabinsky refers to himself as a, as a Marxist lesbian. Um, and of course, you know, 
that's like magic words for the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but but I love like it because I've seen like so many reactions for people being like good yes we love marxist lesbians and in fact marxist lesbians should generally be the heads of a professional association so just proud of emily for being awesome for being a badass librarian and for being a marxist lesbian which like unlike most invocations of marxism that you hear in the public sphere that's actually like a real thing that has a history to it so thank mm-hmm. you emily i you making me feel proud um oh. and reinforcing why librarians are among my just favorite people in the whole world. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Kudos to Emily. Okay, so given that it's the dog days of summer, we thought we could all use something a little frothy, a little silly, maybe even a little bit sexy this mm. month, which is why we decided to discuss Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is a film adaptation of the 2019 New York Times bestselling novel by Casey McQuiston out now from Amazon Studios. This is a queer rom-com in the mold of Pride and Prejudice, but on an international scale. The movie, which was adapted and directed by the playwright Matthew Lopez, a name that our longtime listeners may remember from the Inheritance Roundtable that we convened back in 2019, follows Alex Claremont Diaz, the handsome, rakish, bisexual son of the American president, and Britain's predictably more uptight gay Prince Henry, as their long-simmering feud transforms into a lusty, special relationship, and eventually a romance that shakes the very foundations of political power in both nations, but especially the British crown, played in a two-minute cameo by poor Stephen Fry that I hope really, really paid well. (laughs) There's also a lot of FaceTiming and text bubbles and sassy staff sidekicks and Rachel Maddow for some reason, and a suspension of disbelief required around how these two people would be handled by their respective governments that might just give you an amnurism. We're recording on the release day, and I hear from our culture department that the movie is already trending. I'm really excited today to discuss what in the world is going on in this movie with you all. Before we get into it, I think let's just start with a scene uh, from the opening of the film where our sort of flag-crossed leads are at the wedding of Henry's brother, the actual heir to the throne. Henry is, as we all learned recently from the real Prince Harry's book, uh, The Spare. So we'll listen to that scene. Oh, you gotta wonder how many families he could feed with what this cake costs. Well, probably not as many as if we put your shoes on auction. Ha! <laughs> Rude! Tell me something, Your Majesty. Magnificent day. Yes, Alex. Uh, Did your parents send you to snobbery school, or does looking down on people just come naturally to you? Well, in your case, I would say it's rather inevitable. We are the same height. If you say so, Alex, great to see you. You too, Your Majesty. Actually, it's Your Royal Highness, Your Majesty's reserved for the king. Oh, thank you for the etiquette lesson. You are desperately in need of one. All right, so just to start, uh, would love to hear some initial reactions. Did you enjoy this film? as a bit of silly fun. I'm going to hint before I say my answer that I went in for that, but like left feeling very confused and kind of disturbed by it. I'm curious how you all reacted. I also went in feeling like, yay, fun Mm -hmm. summer rom-com. I know Red, White, and Royal Blue was a really popular romance novel. Um, Casey McQuiston became kind of a star because of it. But I knew nothing about the film going in. So first of all, There is a very weird combination of highly accomplished actors 
and terrible actors who you've never seen before, including the person who plays Alex, the son of the American president. I actually can't think of a person who was a worse actor who I've seen in a recent thing. Wow. I thought he was so bad. And But then Uma Thurman is in it. Oof. And Stephen Fry and Sarah Shahi, who was Carmen on the album. Yes. So I felt like they spent the budget on this movie in all the wrong places. Mm. Um, and for such a buzzy release, I really expected the script to sound a little bit less like it was written by, you know, chat GPT. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lifetime. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. It, it reminded me very much of a Hallmark Christmas movie in that it was sort of like a Mad Libs version. And, you know, all rom-coms have tropes. Most rom-coms, and I would include the ones we've talked about on this show, Bros, Fire Island, add a little bit something different to your understanding of a relationship yeah. or have like funny set pieces that are memorable or quirky characters. And this, I would say, has none of that. Um, the other thing that shocked me from the get-go was that both of the people are closeted. Yeah. And here I was going and imagining that this was really going to be a 21st century rom-com in which these people were already gay. One of them doesn't even know he's bi or isn't even out to himself as bi. Yeah, he seems like he Uh, hasn't sort of self-acknowledged. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that he... That whole self-realization, I think, could have been the thing that might set this movie apart from other films and shows about gay men, because I think the coming to understand your own sexuality is often done more with women, like somebody who's thinks of themselves as straight for a long time and then has an experience that makes them change their mind. We don't actually see that with men as much, you know, men who are supposed to be whatever in their mid 20s, early 20s. And they don't lean into that at all. Yeah. However, uh, we'll say before we kick it back to you guys, that does lead to my favorite, the one scene that I found really, really unobjectionably enjoyable was when he goes to have anal sex for the first time. Mm. And I'm going to put a pin in that because I really (laughs) want to talk to you guys about it later. How did y'all feel? Well, you should never put a pin in it. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Um, I misheard that. Step one. (laughs) The sex education I never got. (laughs) I, I, I feel similarly. Like, I'm not a big romance genre person. And I also was not aware of the book because I guess I'm not a romance genre person. But so I also wrongly went into this thinking like, okay, like they're both, there's like a gay son of the president and a gay prince, like, LOL, I guess they have to go to state dinner together. Oh, but they're not out. Oh, the weird genre choices of the film. This is like, says very little about this film and much more just about like, the kind of content being cranked out right now, um, where they have all these weird FaceTiming uh, plot devices, random green screens showing up, and then... I love Uma Thurman. This is not a read on her, but her as a Southern... That accent. Yeah. A Southern Dixiecrat president. I couldn't... It it did not land for me personally. (laughs) Yes. But then I I switched, I think at about like maybe like 30 minutes in, I was like, oh no, it's a Lifetime movie. And now I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then it felt like it was just hilarious to see. I was like, what's going to happen next? Because I didn't know (laughs) the story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I kind of found found my lane but yeah you know ultimately for me it was very like I guess the question I had going in was sort of like is it exciting to imagine that 
there's gay romance in the ruling class like that that's not like no. I, I, the oldest thing in the book must be yeah. like british and american aristocrats fucking behind the scenes it's probably been happening since the 18th century but yeah. anyways that's what a historian would say <laughs> brian as a gay man i weirdly found it not to be like a very gay movie like I, I, <laughs> if that makes sense like i went in sort of and ex- a lot of people have talked about the book as seemingly written for straight women yes okay i'm so, so i'm glad you said it because i <laughs> the three gay men in my house uh, me and my two partners who watched it together last night all were like oh this is for straight ladies everything about it has that thing of like the the sort of voyeurism that a certain kind of straight woman has about gay mm. relationships, gay sex, uh, I think. I don't know how exactly how to feel about that. Sometimes it makes me uncomfortable. Sometimes I think it's flattering. I don't know. But it very much felt like it was not for me, that it felt like, yeah. it, in the same way that mm. like a lot of drag now feels like it's for teenage girls, like cis teenage mm. girls, rather than gay men. I, uh, there's a you know, traditional audience, I guess, or whatever. Um, it it yeah it felt like that um, and I and I really can't say that it's like a gay movie. I mean, I had a I had a question written down about this. I was like, you know, where where is the queerness in it? They they mm-hmm. and this is like a thing we've talked about before. Like, right? They're both closeted or or closeted at least to publicly, and then but there is no sense of like connection to a broader community. Queer politics does not really enter into the film at all until this crazy and I would say kind of offensive thing at the very end where like a trans kid voting for the first time in Mississippi <laughs> is like in, invoked uh, like just like invoked out of nowhere I was like we've not discussed Mm-mm. trans people at all like what like Mm-mm. why would you even know about that like much less and, and lol that like do they have like an ID to vote in Mississippi right now like you know like like it is it's not not connected to the world that we're living in in any way to the America that we're living in so I just found it, yeah, like I said, kind of confusing and frustrating. I could not connect to it, like as a gay, as a gay man. Like as you bet. on that note, yeah, I think it is very salient that the way we're introduced to these two characters at the very beginning of the film is through their like straight women best friends. Yes, so yeah. Prince Henry's sister mm-hmm. and um, the daughter of the vice president, who's you know very close with the son of the president. And they're both sort of talking about the other man to be like, oh, he's so hot. Like, here he comes. He's so beautiful. So it's really about straight. It's There's a straight female gaze going on. Because those are the audience movie. surrogates, right? Like, I yes. felt like yeah. those were the characters I was being asked to most put, yeah, identify with, for sure. Which led to, like, the first time they hook up. It's not really a spoiler. I was like, oh, okay, well, let's see if this, like, if there's chemistry on screen. I wasn't necessarily expecting it. Anyways, long story short, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was like diegetically kind of weird. And I was like, wait, did they just do one blowjob? Oh my God. Um, okay. And yes. I was like, who does that? But that would totally be, I think, if I'm now putting myself in the fantasy realm of a straight woman, I guess that's what I would imagine. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about the sex. Because Christina, you brought oh God, that up. Yeah. And I'm glad yes. we, in my house, we gasped. We gasped at that <laughs> It, it, the close-up of his hand pressing on Alex's lower back, to me, was the most explicit thing I've seen in any rom-com ever. We could not believe that the first sexual encounter, which is actually, like, the build-up to it is somewhat hot. Like, there is a scene yeah, yeah, yeah. where they're, like, they they make out sort of in, like, a closet or somewhere and then come back uh-huh, into uh-huh. the 
party room and they're both talking about how they're both still hard, which I was like, oh, that's like that's like a hot thing that could happen. Yeah. But it then at the White they House, they talk about his erection as Big Ben. That's true. They did. That oh. you're right. I, I had chosen to erase that from my memory. Uh, but no, then they have their first hookup, and it is a no recip blowjob, like one way. Yeah. Uh, with the like, you know, more femme guy on the more mask guy. It's like very, mm-hmm. very uh, retrograde in, in that regard. And like, and and yes, did feel to me kind of like a straight girl's like perspective somehow. Like, and then there's like later sex scenes that feel like they're from like the the choreography is very hetero. I like. Hmm. What did you, what did you think about the sex? Give us a close reading of the hand pressing on the back, Christina. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, I um, (laughs) almost had like an out-of-body experience (laughs) in in how the sex scene was introduced, which is by Henry saying, let's make love tonight. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I'm like, what have y'all been doing so far? Right. Was that not not sex? Well, first of all, like, oh, this is the first I'm hearing that you haven't had anal sex yet. Second of all, is that the only thing we consider sex? Like, that's not, granted, I'm not a gay man, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I think queer people have a more expansive definition of what sex is. Absolutely, yeah, Um, absolutely. So I'm like, oh, but then, so anal sex is like making love, but everything else is what, you know? But the funny part that I thought was uh, Alex being like, well, who does what? Like, what are we gonna do? I'm like, this is the kind of, awkward logistical conversation that we often don't see in sex scenes where, you know, you, you do uh, in, in good sex, I think, want to talk about like, who likes to do what we've never encountered this before. Like, mm-hmm. what are your favorite things? Like, let's, let's figure this out before we like hop onto each other. So I thought that was kind of cute and also helpfully expository because I <laughs> didn't know that Alex hadn't done any of these things before. True. But then yeah, of course, Alex tops, mm-hmm. because as we know, you know, he's the more masculine, experienced one. Mm-hmm. And so he gets on top of Henry, his this key that he oh, wears God, that dangling key. around his neck yeah, so looks like it's about if, if there's a single thrust, it's going to knock one of Henry's teeth out because it's dangling <laughs> so low. And he just slowly, there's like a close up of Henry putting his hand on Alex's lower back and slightly pressing it. It, so you're like, oh, there's penetration happening here. Woo. Like, we know exactly what's happening, right? And it was like, the sex scene is so slow and so many close-ups of hands clasping each other that um, it felt a little bit like a parody of a sex scene yeah. to me. And for all of its romance, it didn't feel very passionate, if that makes sense. Right. But I still appreciated it because that was the one part of the film that actually felt different to me from Hmm. any other uh, sort of formulaic rom-com that I've seen. And and there's not enough anal sex in culture right now. So at least they're trying. I will say as a gay man that, um, and I'm glad that you, that you, Christina, you noted the way that penetration was signaled because the minute that he, that he does that, he then stops and like, I think it's Alex and he's like, you know, I never would have thought we'd find ourselves here or something. It's just like like small talk, and it's like you're inside of him. Like, what are you doing? I have no well, they're diplomats. Has, they're no used one, to that. Right. <laughs> like, like, no this one is has not ever, the time to be reflecting on your the that. progress of your relationship. <laughs> no, it's like no, we're we're fucking now. We're not doing that. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, uh, wild <laughs> wild scene. Um, yeah, that was that was really funny to me, and I kind of want to go back and watch that scene again. 
I also wanted to bring up on a more serious note. I felt like there was a speech in this story that I I found weirdly preachy for a movie that had practically zero politics, which is the one that Alex delivers in the White House press briefing room oh God, about yeah. how terrible it is to out people and how no queer person has an obligation to come out. Maybe we can listen to a little clip of that. What was taken from us this week was our right to determine for ourselves how and when we should share our relationship and queer identities with the world. The truth is, every queer person has the right to come out on their own terms and on their own timeline. They also have the right to choose not to come out at all. The forced conformity of the closet cannot be answered with forced conformity in coming out of it. This isn't about shame. This is about privacy and the fundamental right of self-determination, which are exactly the principles on which the struggle for queer liberation has always been fought. How do you guys feel about this? I felt kind of scolded by it. Hmm. Well, it just felt so uncontextualized. (laughs) Like, I mean, there's just so much going on that builds, like, the scenery and the structure of this film's universe that are weirdly depoliticized, right? It's like, one person is the son of an elected president. The other person is, like, literally an inheritor to a fucking royal family. Mm-hmm. But they're, the joke is that they're both equally elite. But it's like... Oh, yeah. And then there's, like, there's weird references in the United States to, like, real American politicians that actually exist in the real world. Like, Mitch McConnell right. gets name-dropped at one point. But then... But it's also not real. And so I'm just like, no, you didn't earn this. Because I, like, literally don't understand how much disbelief I'm supposed to suspend. And then, yeah, yeah the preachiness... I mean, some of it is just that character. Like, he's the writing and the performance is just so bizarre and it's so aggressive at times without yeah. earning any explanation for why he's like kind of a fucking asshole, but apparently I'm supposed to agree with him where I was just like, well, it's cause he's American. It's well, it did feel very much like I was just like, he's just some yeah. fucking asshole guy who's bisexual and has a chip on his shoulder. It feels like yeah. he's yelling at me. Yeah. That's how I felt. It also felt to me like it's played like this sort of triumphant um, political statement. And I'm like, non-consensually outing privileged celebrities is yeah. not the biggest political issue facing LGBTQ people Well, it's today. very, like, Like, 90s. why is this the one issue that it is you're, 90s. like, hanging your hat on? Right. Yeah, well, that whole thing was so, felt so 90s to me. It was, like, hmm. like, even the language of it, like, my, the person I love happens to be a man and happens, yes. like, it, it yes. has, it had this vocabulary and kind of cadence of, of just a very a very different moment from ours, um, and again, hadn't you right? Like, again, it shows that like lack of connection to sort of any sense of queer or gay politics now, because that that's just not how we right. talk about that anymore. Honestly, in terms of the outing, I, the one character in this whole movie that I actually liked and sided with was like the evil journalist. He Miguel, right? He's one of the men that Alex has like had some kind of male on male contact with already. <laughs> and Alex is a total asshole to him though. But also multiple times as like mind if I quote you on that? And he's like, Yeah, whatever, yeah. man. And then he's like mad when the guy actually quotes him. And I think yeah. it's the, it's like it's a journalist. I, I thought the journalist actually did great work. I, I don't have any. Yeah, he did. <laughs> I also, no, no. yeah, I would do that too. Yeah. I right. mean, I, this does fall into the tradition of films giving journalists a bad rap yeah, by yeah. acting like we sleep with our sources. Right. But right. hell yeah, if I knew that somebody 
famous and powerful mm-hmm. was gay and not saying it and they had influence on like the public discourse mm-hmm. in the year of our lord uh, 2023 like hell yeah i mean that's just my opinion on things like i'm kind of pro outing in that situation if i knew the prince was gay hell yeah yeah like, that actually makes a difference and it's fucked to be closeted yeah perhaps i'll get canceled for this too in addition to my barbie movie opinion <laughs> but it, it just felt uh, very grating to me that this was the issue that the film wanted to make a statement mm-hmm. about. As if this is mm-hmm. a plague, you know, um, sweeping the LGBTQ community instead of literally everything else that's happening. Right. I mean, I think it just, like, is a reminder that romance as solution to political problems is just such a embarrassing trope where like people mm-hmm. people just can't help who they are and their desires and then it brings some political clarity it's like the hell did that ever happens mm-hmm. there are a lot of closeted political leaders that have been for a long time and trust me they sleep yeah. like pretty well at night yeah and this raises this has been sort of part of the conversation the whole time but like you know rom-coms i think in general are about fantasy right it's about mm-hmm. you know you do suspend mm-hmm some logic and some some of the normal structures of our world to to get into them. This one's, to what you were just saying, Jules, this one's, like, attempt to, like, kind of to use love to sort of erase the state completely in this very strange way that just, like, is confusing and odd, like, really distracts from whatever the chemistry they hope that these two characters might have. Like, it it just, I, I found myself by the end being kind of, upset by it um you know there's there's actually at the very end a uh and i don't think this is spoiling too much it doesn't really matter the election is happening and you hear that all of the rust belt states have gone republican in this election and we're waiting to hear about texas i won't say what happens but like that's a nightmare like for queer people like those states going red is a literal nightmare like that's terrifying and it's treated as just like whoop like you know that it doesn't matter I think it was a real miscalculation to to try to mix the two things. I don't know if the book is more successful at it or not. Maybe it is. I think the film leaves us in this very weird place at the end where, like Jules was saying, we're meant to think that gay love is going to somehow reshape the state or like improve mm. the state. Yes. Because it's way, all about whether these people are accepted by their families, by their, and right. happen to be which, very which, see, which are in fact the state, and so, right. and but it doesn't yeah. resolve that at all, or show show that that's true in any way, um, and and kind of leaves the states for all of their problems like uncritiqued in any way too. I don't know. That might mm. be asking too much of a rom com, mm. but I, but I found I found it a very strange place to end uh, after yeah. two hours, you know. Okay, another, the way you talked about that also made me think of another weird thing that I found about the movie, which is how it takes kind of hilariously great pains to convince us that Alex is working class. I feel like if I control F the script, working class would probably appear like 50 times. And it's trying to make all these excuses for, he's like, oh yeah, I, I was working class until my mom became president. That's not how that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Uh, that when they go to, um, you know, his family's like Texas Hill Country vacation home, he's like, oh yeah, we bought this after my mom wrote her book. Like, okay, it feels like they're trying to, and by that I mean Casey McQuiston probably, is trying to have it both ways where you're trying to make it a little bit of an upstairs-downstairs romance. 
while also having it be a sort of a fantasy story about elites and the pressure of the public eye. Mm. Um, and I wasn't sure whether that was supposed to make us understand more why Alex has this massive chip on his shoulder, but the whole thing felt like a real sort of like first graders understanding of class politics and how that works. And Uma Thurman's Southern accent is part of it. Mm -hmm. Really trying to get us to believe that she's really like a hick that found her way to the White House, which is just not what happens. Yeah. Well, I have like four pages of notes about this movie, so we really could (laughs) really go on forever. Uh, I fear in the words of President Emma Thurman, we may be trying to be idealistic when we need to be realistic. <laughs> as she tells as she tells Alex at some point. So listeners, uh, I hear that a lot of you are already watching it from our culture department, like I said. Uh, if you do watch Red, White, and Royal Blue, please let us know what you think about it. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe Christina needs to be canceled. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I'd love to hear feedback. You can always reach out at outwardpodcast.slate.com. In their new memoir out this month, entitled Nobody Needs to Know, Pigeon Pagonis brings us to their childhood in Chicago spent trekking back and forth to Lurie Children's Hospital. Between falling in love with softball, making friends, an all-girls school, and falling in teenage love is a kind of growing shadow and sense of unease from a series of surgeries, a bottle of hormone pills, and a suspicion that the doctors and adults in their life aren't being honest. It's not until Paconis gets to college that they find out that they're intersex and that a lifetime of painful and also deliberately secretive medicalization has been forced on them without their full consent or even understanding. But from that decisive moment, nobody needs to know seamlessly transforms into a political autobiography as Pagonis shares how coming into their own self dovetailed with developing a burgeoning intersex political consciousness and an incredible ambitious activist agenda that in 2020 led to a monumental victory when Larry Children's Hospital announced it would end the harmful practice of surgeries on intersex infants and children. Pigeon Pagonis is a co-founder along with Sean Saifa-Wall and Linnell Stephanie Long of the incredible Intersex Justice Project that is working towards the end of traumatic intersex medicalization. And we're just so delighted to have them on the show today to talk about their memoir, Pigeon. Welcome to Outward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Your memoir is like, first of all, it's just like a page turner. (laughs) I I just like really actually could not put it down. And, and something I was really struck by reading it is actually how well suited like the memoir genre is for introducing sort of to a general readership or to the public, some common intersex experiences. There's something about the way, you know, we kind of arrive, you know, early on in your life, and we're sort of as readers kind of plunged into your point of view. Mm-hmm. So when you're a young child, and even moving into adolescence, it's clear from the narrative you're telling that you're sort of coming to terms with the feeling of there being some kind of lie sort of structuring, you know, your environment. Um, And it comes up, you know, really intensely when you have to go see a doctor or go to the hospital or the way adults talk about your body or talk about your gender, but you don't yet have access to the truth. And I I was kind of curious, like, from a storytelling perspective, was that something that you really 
wanted to do on purpose, sort of put us in your shoes? And maybe more broadly, is there something really important about before confronting lies, like talking about the fact of how, you know, when it comes to telling intersex stories, it's really important for people to understand that lies and secrecy, um, all these things imposed on intersex people from a young age, you know, can have a really big impact. How was that sort of something that was running through your mind when you were conceiving of, of the memoir? So when I was in grad school, I had an opportunity to do a thesis project for my women and gender studies degree mm. at DePaul. And my mentor, Irene Beck, who was a professor at DePaul, she would say, maybe you should write a curriculum, you know, about intersex. Irene was like, you know, maybe you should write a book. She told me about a person in the English department that might be great to pair with as like my chair. And I started to write my book with this, with this, with the help of that person. Her name was Michelle Moran, told me, have you heard of this book called Girl Interrupted? And I was mm. like, no, I've seen the movie like 20, 27 times. I was obsessed with Angelina Jolie, you know, mm-hmm. growing up. But I never knew there was a book. I just thought it was a movie. Each chapter opens up with a medical record from her mental institution that she mm. stayed in. Mm-hmm. And it's like what the doctors wrote about her. Mm. And then the chapter preceding is her actual lived experience of that experience that they wrote about. So in women and gender studies, we learned a lot about subjectivity versus objectivity mm. and how the mm-hmm. objective voice in our society gets a lot more weight than like people's subjective experiences, mm. especially if you are of a marginalized group of any XYZ category. So my idea was I'm going to write my story that way. I wanted to put like, my medical records and then write my story and my subjective hmm. voice which is comes from a feminist background and framework mm-hmm. of like prioritizing mm-hmm. the subjectivity the personal is political etc sure <laughs> i also thought it was particularly powerful to have that subjective account of your growing up and coming of age because we don't hear from kids a lot in adolescence you know mm-hmm. and especially when it comes to intersex youth who have been subjected to this like secretive care, not knowing what's going on with their own bodies in many cases, undergoing um, non-consensual medical procedures, like that is a perspective that has been incredibly difficult to find until you and, you know, people like you have been, you know, taken up more space in recent decades. You know, without spoiling the book, can you just kind of give our listeners a sense of how it is that you could go to age 18 or 19 before really finding out you were intersex and how that knowledge or realization first came to you? Um, I think it's because shame is a hell of a drug in our hmm. in our lives, and it is so powerful. And secrecy is a hell of a drug too, mm-hmm. which walks hand in hand with shame. Mm-hmm. And so my family is the premier family when it comes to shame and secrecy, even before <laughs> me. Like they are just so good at covering lies up or hiding secrets. I come from a family that, like you know, is so well versed in secrecy and shame and um i think you know it comes from a good desire of like we just want to get by or we don't want to like get stuck in our pain you know but it whatever so i come along and they're just so used to that already that when the doctors are feeding them like spoonfuls of of secrecy and shame Mm. and 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 also just don't do these don't tell them this certain thing or whatever my family was like period let's go like we're so used to that and so (laughs) i grew up in that environment of I just didn't know stuff. And I mean, I did know stuff. That's the thing is that these Mm. doctors are experts 
they created a fiction for me that I was born with cancer in my ovaries and that they came in, they swooped in and they saved my life. They removed them. And they told my parents to tell me that. My parents did. So everything had an explanation. It was like, why can't I have a period? Oh, I was born with cancer and they took my mm -hmm. ovaries out. Why can't I have children? Same reason. And why do I go to the doctor? Oh, just to check up on those things that they took out. And why do I take pills? Oh, well, they took your organs out that would have produced those hormones. Yeah. So you got to take these pills. So everything fell in place. And I remember in my research in grad school, I found a nursing book. And they lay it out in there what to say to your patient's parents that have what I had. Exactly what they said to my parents. Scrubs. So it's like, That's it's written down. Parts to me. Like the information yeah. was being kept from your parents too, more or less. Half of it was, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. like half of it was, they would... They give them some information, but they would exaggerate things like the cancer uh -huh. risk or they would tell my parents flat out like, oh, we're going to keep all of the nerves intact and all the tissue. Everything will be fine. It'll just be a little smaller. That was not the case. So mm -hmm. stuff like that. And they never said the word intersex or what that means. They were just like basically describe me as like an uncooked chicken girl, girl chicken, <laughs> and that they're going to okay. put me in the oven a little bit longer and fix me mm. up. And I'd come out like, you know, well done. And so basically I got to 18 that way. And also... I think when you grow up that way, where you know you're different, and they're also telling you, don't tell anybody about the pills you're taking. Don't mm, tell anybody right. that you survived this stuff. All you want then is to be normal. Yeah. Because it's like, you always want the pendulum, the opposite of that end of that pendulum. So if like, they're kind of telling you, you're different. You can't have kids, you can't have a period, but you can adopt, don't worry. You're just like, I wanna be normal, I wanna be normal. So you're gonna also then do the work for them, I think, of mm. keeping that myth alive and the shame in the secrecy. Like, it just all goes together. Just to follow up on Christina's question, so you got there, and then you have this really um, harrowing and kind of beautifully written scene mm -hmm. where you learn the truth. You're in, you're in a class in college, uh, and you are presented with this idea of intersex for the first time. Can you just sort of tell that story uh, to our listeners? <laughs> I'm, like, thinking about it right now, and I'm like, it's such a movie scene. Like, yeah. I'm in college. I didn't know what 400 meant, like the numbers next to the classes. So I ended up in a, a senior level psychology class my freshman year just because I saw psychology of women and I'm like, that sounds cool. And <laughs> so, you know, it's this moment in my life where I left my town that I was, you know, like where I grew up for a while. I had my boyfriend there and I'm, I'm exploring these new things. I'm around new people and, and I'm also, you know, for the first time I'm removed from my family, like I'm kind of out of this bubble where all the like, everything else used to live, all the lies and everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting in this classroom and my teacher puts up this slide that's just like, sounds just like me. It says, women with AIS, and she, she said it's, you know, androgen insensitivity syndrome, they have, and it said like, they can't have children. And I'm like, that's me. They can't have periods, that's me. They sometimes are very tall and beautiful, like models. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of not me. I'm only like, you know, five, six. And, um, I, and then beautiful. it says, but beautiful. But I didn't, I didn't consider myself beautiful at the time. But now, now I'm slowly feeling and starting to understand that. There's this next one that says, has XY chromosomes. Hmm. Oh, and undescended testes and all that. And I was like, oh, that's not me. Like, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. <laughs> I, have my, I have my straight boyfriend over there. And, like, you know, I'm a girl. I was wearing, like, fake diamond earrings. And, like, my, I worked at Abercrombie probably at the time. And, like, I was really, like, trying to put it on. Like, you know, I was real girly at that time. Like, 
I was still a tomboy, but I was like, also could play the girl part really well. I go back to my dorm, I should say, I call my mom and I get, I get the truth from her because I turned 18 and they had shipped my mom some paperwork to push me out of the hospital and put me into an adult's hospital, mm. like with a gynecologist. So I said, mom, open that paperwork. And like, what's the word that's on there? Like, does it have a diagnosis? And she started to say the word androgen insensitivity syndrome which is what I had just learned about in class. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. I threw my, it was a flip phone. I threw it at the brick walls, the cinder block walls. It broke. And I screamed and I, I cried and I just felt like somebody kicked me, got the wind kicked out of me. It's like, I guess that part where Neo's in the matrix probably. And he's like, mm. oh, yes. <laughs> this is the yeah. truth. Yeah, That's exactly yeah. what happened, but it wasn't as cool. Like I wasn't right. on some, like some journey with like a trench coat. I was just like, <laughs> oh, they lied to me like about yeah. everything. And what does this mean? And I only knew sex at that time as a binary too. Yeah. So mm. I just thought, oh, I was a boy and they raised me as a girl. Oh, and that was all I could comprehend at that time. I didn't even know what the word intersex was yet. Mm -hmm. I just knew I'm a boy. And what the hell? Where's my body parts if I'm a boy? Yeah. And what happened and all that stuff. So, and if you're listening at home, I wasn't born with a penis, but at that time I didn't understand that you could be anything but a cisgender male body mm. person right. or a cisgender right. female mm -hmm. body person. I was basically born looking like a female at birth, and so they assigned me female at birth on the outside, but on the inside I had undescended testes. I did not have a uterus. Um, and I had what they called an enlarged clitoris, which was 1.5 centimeters only when stretched at the age of four years old. Um, oh, and my body was supposedly, supposedly converts androgens like testosterone into estrogen. So they were like, oh, well, let's just what they do with kids like me is they usually assign us female and they take out our undescended testes because they see those as unnecessary male parts that a girl like me, quote unquote, shouldn't need. And then they're like, we'll just put her on hormone replacement therapy when she turns of age of puberty. Bada boom, bada bing. Tell her she had cancer. We saved her life. And to adopt some kids and go get married to a nice man. Don't tell him you can't have kids until you're mm. married with him. Oh and your life will be perfect. And no one needs to know. And so, yeah. Pigeon, we talked about one of your big successes. Um, the fact that Lurie Children's Hospital stopped performing those non-consensual medical procedures. What are you working on next? Or what do you think you know, some of the next steps would be for intersex justice? in the US? Oh. <laughs> Small questions. This is, this is the question I've been trying to figure out myself mm. for the past year or years now, actually. And I think that what's next is how do we now combine the efforts of the trans movement for bodily autonomy and, and human rights and the intersex movement for human rights and bodily autonomy? Um, yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, th there's nothing more clear than these anti-trans bills mm -hmm. that are over, I think, 800 in the past five years that have been um, created. Over 80% uh, of them have specific language that say that these trans kids cannot get surgeries because we, quote unquote, are trying to protect the children. But if they're intersex, we mm -hmm. still want them to get surgeries. And we've never before seen intersex oppression just gonna call it what it is mm -hmm. like written into a legislation before yeah so all this work that intersex activists have been doing since the early 90s 
has never had to even go up against like, oh, this is actually codified into law what's mm-hmm. happening to us. It's just been happening behind closed doors. So right. now we're at this moment where the right is seeing that they can rally their base with this cause. They lost on the gay marriage thing and they're like, well, now who could we uh, pick on and right. rally our base? And it became trans people. And everyone is covering this as anti-trans legislation, but they're not knowing or, or at least saying that, or maybe they just don't see it or, or understand that this is actually also anti-intersex mm-hmm. legislation. Yeah. And this is something that me and Saifa and others have been saying for 10, 15, maybe 10 years now is like intersex and trans people need each other. Like Saifa is trans himself mm-hmm. and I'm non-binary and consider myself under the trans umbrella. And I see our fight and our struggle is just so interwoven. So I mm. think what's next is how do we come together and just fight together for bodily autonomy for everybody trans or not intersex or not um i think once the world and society gets more freedom actual freedom not the stuff that they pretend we have and like they lie about like it's so crazy to me that this country is like supposedly all about freedom and uh, liberty and justice and yet so many people don't have access to that and trans people are a perfect example and so are intersex people Mm -hmm. and, and the list goes on um so I think that's what's next. The quintessential experience of an intersex advocate or activist is you're constantly, A, steeped in your trauma and sharing your story. Mm-hmm. So story-based activism becomes like your thing and you don't realize how you're re-traumatizing yourself all the time, mm-hmm. or at least I was and, and am. But B, you're always losing. You're always coming up against losses. Like mm-hmm. when we tried to do a national lawsuit, we lost. When you know mm-hmm. all these things we've tried, like mm-hmm. I am tired. I'm 37. I've been doing this since I was 22. Yeah. And I can't keep telling my story and going out into the streets and fighting these doctors that don't care about us whatsoever. I think moving forward, besides what I said about intersex and trans people coming together to fight, what's next for me is figuring out how to reclaim my body and reclaim my mm. my time and my peace and my joy. I got to really figure out what is life about other than fighting for justice as much as I can. And I want to be able to embody that for other intersex people to have, to present like a sense of hope for people that like it can get better or you can find joy or you can find love and you can do other things outside of um, sharing your story in order to still help your community out and, and seek justice. Hmm. We could talk all day, um, but there's always the risk of spoilers when there's a book. So, um, listeners, trust me, trust me, trust me. <laughs> You're gonna want to go out and and pick up and read. Nobody needs to know immediately. And I think you know, just to say, I'm so glad uh, you were able to set that up for us because we've talked a lot about anti-trans politics and legislation on this show. But I think this is an urgent and important thread in understanding where we are today, but also a wonderful chance to for for listeners to get to know you even better, Pigeon. Thank you so, so, so much for making time to talk with us today. This has been such a treat. You're so welcome. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, that's almost all the time we have for this month. But before we go, let's hear about uh, our gay agendas for the month. Brian, what do you think we should do? Um, so I have two. I'll keep them short. Uh, I just couldn't choose. Um, but they are related. They're sort of both on the topic of what queerness is or means today. One is sort of light and summary for the end of your August, and one is maybe your like back to school reading assignment. Let's think of them that way. The first is a show called Miriam and Alan Lost in Scotland. 
uh, it's on PBS now, and the second season just came out this summer, and it follows Alan Cumming and Miriam Margulies, the actress, as they traipse around Scotland, revisiting family sites and places they've always wanted to see. And also in the second season, they actually come to the U.S., to L.A., <laughs> and this kind of hilarious thing where they're like treating it like a travel show like an American travel show would treat like going to Europe. It's like, we're in <laughs> California on the West Coast, and now we're at the city center of Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> but it's them in an RV just, like, laughing and, like, telling weird stories about their time as actors. And a lot of it is actually about discussing sort of generational differences in understanding of queerness. Uh, Miriam oh, is, I think, 82 or so. Um, and has some very, uh, you know, just older ideas about sort of coming out, actually, about whether you should come out or not. They go to, like, a queer cafe and talk about gender stuff. She, you know, is trying, but not understanding all of it, and Alan is trying to kind of, you know, help that conversation along. Really interesting stuff, really beautiful. Um, They get a tartan made uh, that represents both of them. So that's a lovely show, streaming on PBS. The second thing I had to recommend was an essay that just came out uh, at the beginning of August from Hugh Ryan, friend of Outward, gay historian. Um, It's called Who's Afraid of Social Contagion? Uh, And it's in the Boston Review. And it's just a really, really smart take on why he thinks we are going through a sort of great second reorganization of gender and sexuality. Now he he takes us back to sort of the end of the 19th century when the first one, he, uh, he argues, happened and explains why the one we're seeing now with the proliferation of of uh, all kinds of identities and especially on the internet is actually, you know, we should look at it as a, as a, as a second wave of that kind of reorganization. It's super smart, super clarifying, um, and actually talks a fair amount about intersex uh, activism, so that connects to, to Pigeon. Um, so really recommend it. It's called Who's Afraid of Social Contagion, and it's in the Boston Review. Uh, Jules, what do you have? Yeah, so I'm just recommending something small as a portal um, for some reflection, but Vogue magazine has um, a, just a short a short article and a kind of photo essay covering the uh, memorial in Brooklyn recently um, for O'Shea Sibley, who folks probably heard um, was killed last month in, at a gas station in Brooklyn. You know, while uh, he and some friends were coming back from Jersey, filling up their car, and he was voguing to Beyonce's Renaissance um, very, very, very gorgeously and beautifully. And, you know, there's been a lot of <laughs> brouhaha and even disinformation around this uh, around this killing. It was, like, falsely attributed to Muslims uh, in that very uh, <laughs> New York City bullshit kind of way. But but anyways, the, the memorial and rally and kind of street ball um, that happened in Brooklyn actually at and around the gas station itself is... Just a really powerful, um, I mean, I wasn't there in person, but just from what I've seen, an incredibly powerful um, moment. And and so the, the Vogue article has some photos, but, you know, there are also plenty of social media videos um, of folks who gathered also to proclaim the power of Vogue and of ballroom, uh, and not just as a mode of resilience, but you know, actively claiming that Black queerness in public for all that it has meant and continues to mean. And to me, it just feels like, yeah, in the summer of everyone um, going to Beyonce concerts and, you know, just a a summer of of anti 
Black and anti-LGBT violence is just a moment to to sit with that, but also to sit just with the force and the power of it. Um, yeah. I think there's there's a lot there. So just recommending this piece as a kind of little visual portal um, to, to take some time this month to, to think about what kinds of violence get covered, which ones rise to the national kind of imaginary is important and, um, and how that fits into just a lot, a lot going on these days. Christina, what about you? I watched last night John Early's HBO special, HBO or Max, I guess we're supposed yeah, to Yeah, Max, yeah. Um, it's called Now More Than Ever. Yeah. If you aren't familiar with his work, he I know him at least as Elliot Goss from Search Party. He's so fun to watch, and his show is really interesting. It's not just stand-up. He also sings with a really, really good band, and the show ends with a version of uh, Donna Summer's I Feel Love that has kind of changed the way I think about the song. It's just so good. But he's hilarious. He's so gay. There's a bit that I actually was thinking about, Red, White, and Royal Blue, where he talks about, like, sometimes anal sex is so good. He's, like, convinced that the anus actually began as a sex organ. And (laughs) the, like, pooping part is kind of like an ancillary thing that's developed over time. Mm. And he's like, that probably means that people who weren't having anal sex died out. And, like, that's why we've evolved. Anyway, it's just, like, really, really funny. He also reads millennials to filth. I was like, this has been really um, extracted from the deepest corners of my own brain, like annoyances that I have. He's like, we're an entire generation of people pretending to hate the word moist. Um, (laughs) Anyway, I laughed out loud by myself on the couch. Um, It's so good. Again, it's called Now More Than Ever, John Early on HBO. Fantastic. Ooh, I'm going to watch that. I love that. And on that note, this was such a fun show. Listeners, we would love to hear what you think about the stuff we talked about. You can always send us your feedback, your topic ideas, your loving, gentle criticism, or any cancellation requests you have for me <laughs> at outwardpodcast at slate.com. You can send us a voice memo. You can send us just words on an email. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and X, I guess now we call it, at Slate Outward. And just a reminder, if you join Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. If you want to learn more about that, go to slate.com slash Outward Plus. June Thomas is our producer and the key to our working class family's palatial <laughs> Texas country estate. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, tell your British lovers about it, rate and review us so other people can find us. Brian, Jules, it's been a pleasure. Bye, you guys. Stay realistic, not idealistic. (laughs) (laughs) And gay. And gay. gay.